0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. Hey you guys this episode is brought to you once again by our friends at Noon Hydration you know the uh, the web address noonlife.com n u u n life.com and if you stick with me and listen to the show occasionally they send me a little notices of a discount that I can hopefully get you guys dialed in but if you if you you know if you need it beforehand head over to noonlife.com and grab a couple tubes or even better go to your local bike shop buy a couple tubes tell them tell them i told you to go like that's going to help you anywhere but there we go noon hydration thanks to them once again for being a part of the show Welcome to the podcast. I can't think of something that I should say about the podcast to welcome you to it. That is a cop out, but that's what I'm going with. I'm Pat Bulger, this is the Pack Filler. Hi you guys. Hi you guys. You guys. You guys, it's happened. <laughs> I've got problems. I'm going to start off with my problems. I've officially reached two unfortunate statuses recently, and I need your help. I'm reaching out for help. This is a call for help. My first problem, you guys, and I know this is going to come as a shock to you. I'm officially addicted to cycling. I know you're probably saying to yourself, Pat, you're only now addicted. What the hell's the problem? You have 18 bikes in your basement. You talk incessantly about the activity, and you haven't had hair on your legs for over 35 years. I know. But now it's, it's seriously bad, you guys. And some of you can probably relate to this, okay? I've been spending the last two weeks waiting like a kid on Christmas Eve for the new pack filler kits to arrive. This isn't an ad. This isn't anything like that. I'm sure you guys have all done this when you've ordered team or club kits. And I know for those of you guys who probably ordered the kit yourself, you're probably waiting a little bit like me. But this is bad. Every time a truck drives by, I think the dog and I will sprint to the couch to look out to see if it's a delivery from Castelli. My dog probably has different reasons. And I know they said it would be six to eight weeks. But I swear it's been at least 12. I swear. I swear. Oh, man, I'm so excited for that stuff to come. I want to see it. And I know I'm supposed to be all professional and, you know, praise Castelli, and they're doing their job. They're doing what they said they were going to do, and it's going to be a gorgeous kit, and it's going to hopefully fit perfectly, even though I didn't buy a fit kit, and so I'm all worried about that, and I don't want it to be too big because I don't want it to flap, and I don't want it to be too small because I don't want it to show my flaps. (sighs) So there's my... I'm also addicted... To this sport and then I've been spending way too much time looking at online at cycling shoes. I think my wife were she married to anybody else would be probably concerned about some sort of a porn addiction with how much I'm looking at my iPad. I, I've always been okay you guys my birthdays next week don't give me anything and I've I've decided to buy myself new cycling shoes as a gift to myself, all right, I'm going to buy both new road and mountain shoes because I've always been a CD guy. My road and mountain shoes are just about ready for retirement. I got a pair of road CDs, uh, the, the all black, dark nights that are really old, but they've done great, but it's time for them to probably go someplace else. I'll, you know me, I'll probably keep them, but also, I also have a pair of Bonts that I use for my mountain shoes. That I, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe my foot just doesn't fit the Bont perfectly. It's been a good shoe, but it's not something that I would necessarily, you know, stick with. Um, but they've been yeah, they've been good. They're stiffer than hell, which has been was really good. Um, but you know, I don't, I don't want to bash Bont, but I don't know if they're my shoes. I should probably go with two new pair of CDs. The problem is. And I'm going to open up a flood of probably opinions, which I fully encourage you to throw at me. The problem is, I love the look of those zero shoes. You know what I'm talking about? The laces. Laces, in my opinion, are cycling porn, they are sexy. And I can't decide. Because I, I know I should probably go to a local bike shop and I should probably try some on and see how it feels and stuff like that. I've been constantly addicted to researching, to reading reviews, to looking at different color combinations, and I, and I, can't, I can't pull the trigger. Speaking of which I actually want to go with white road shoes. And I know some of you probably have an opinion on what color road shoes should be and what color mountain shoes should be. I'm thinking about a white pair of road shoes, but the problem is I'm so damned white. They might match my calves and it would look yeah, wow, that's that guy's as pale as his shoes. And I'll probably go with dark for mountain. But this oh, you guys tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. I know I'm gonna Get a flood of people all pro zero pro c d pro whatever my style i'm i you know i don't need an enduro mountain shoe i just need a good cross country shoe uh my road shoes um yeah i need a pretty good road shoe i'm you know i'm i i guess i some people would call me a power rider even though i'm old and i don't really power anything anymore except for coffee and beer so Tell me what you think. Tell me what to do. Somebody tell me which ones to buy. The other status I've reachedly official, uh, officially reached, reachly officiald, shit, officially reached. And this one is I've, I was I've been recently traumatized. I am now officially the old blind guy. I've been wearing glasses for the past few years, but they've only been readers because I've, I just have problems reading up close, which is probably because my age and things like that and I start to go and all that sort of deal is, yeah. Distance has never been a problem, which is great for cycling. I'm, I'm Riding is perfect for me, but not when I want to look at my Garmin, when I want to sign the check for a cup of coffee or a beer or check my Strava or if somebody texts me while I'm on a ride or something like that. And and so I, I go with bifocal cycling glasses, which are so... And I'm not going to name the name of the company that I wear because I bought them and I don't want to bash them because they do a product that they're intending. But I think they look so dorky. And I, so I went to the optometrist yesterday. Actually, a couple of weeks ago I went and I finally got a, a, an eyeglass prescription. All right. Instead of just... You know, readers that you buy that have a little magnification down below, and you're good to go. But I finally went and got my eyes checked because distance was has always been fine, but it was always you know it was a little bit weird lately. So I got I finally got a, pres- a pair of prescription eyeglasses, which which are great. I love them. But uh, yesterday I decided to go in and get fitted for contacts. And for those of you who wear contact lenses, I uh, I applaud you. You have a pain threshold higher than any person I have ever dealt. That was the worst experience I have ever gone through. My body and brain have been genetically predisposed and trained never to put my finger in my eye. And now I go into the optometrist and this lady is showing me how to properly stick my finger in my eye. It She shows me, first of all, she puts me back on this, you know, dental chair from hell and my head goes back and then she's putting her finger in my eye and putting the contacts in and I'm blinking like crazy because that's my natural tendency. And I finally get them in and it feels, they feel really freaking weird. And then we go into this other room and she puts a mirror in front of me and she says, okay, you've got your contacts in. Now you need to take them out and put them in three times by yourself. You guys, that hurt more than an FTP test. I was crying in the lobby of this optometrist studio with other people walking around trying to figure out how to get these things in or out. And she made me do it three times. The third time I did it, it stung so bad on my eyes that I I was bawling. And my eyes, I'm supposed to, yesterday I was supposed to wear them for six hours. Today I'm supposed to wear them for 10 hours. I haven't put them in yet. I'm still wearing my glasses right now. And tomorrow I'm supposed to wear them for 12 hours. My eyes feel like I've just done four hours on dusty trails. You know that feeling with the grit in your eyes and stuff like that? And plus, after yesterday, I'm not sure I can actually read that better. There, there, there's the, the contacts with an actual bifocal in them. I don't know how it works, but apparently they say it works. Shit. This is my other problem. I need your thoughts on this one too. I don't want to buy prescription cycling glasses because they cost a freaking fortune. They have a big display at the at the optometrist place of like Oakley's and Rudy projects and things like that, which you can buy prescription lenses for. I, I have a feeling even with my insurance, they're gonna probably be like four or five hundred bucks out of pocket. That's just crazy. I don't want to buy focal glasses cycling glasses anymore because they're old man nerdy and I am I personify that enough as it is. And I also don't want the ones where you put the actual, you know, the the, the lenses behind, like you have your sunglasses and these are a little insert into the back of them because I think they also look really stupid. Sorry to anybody who wears those. So what do I do? Do I just not wear any type of prescription when I'm out cycling and carry my glasses in my back pocket and switch out whenever I need to do something? Do I... Make my Garmin display bigger so I can see it when I'm riding? Do I go with the contacts and will I get used to them? These are my problems, you guys. Shit. Well, I guess in the grand scheme of things, I've got it pretty good. The tour starts this weekend. Oh, I just hope the kid comes. I just hope it comes. All right, I'll get to the show. I'll shut up now. Sorry. Today's guest is the one and only Leonard Zinn. You probably know him from his road and mountain bike maintenance manuals. I call them the, the Bibles that pretty much every home mechanic should if own, if not have owned in the past. Um, he keeps doing new versions of them throughout time, so they update to all the new styles and new equipments and things like that. Um, you also probably know him from his work at VeloNews. You might probably know him from uh, Zinn Cycles, um, and he's also the author of a pretty scary new book, called the haywire heart which we're going to talk about he's an expert in pretty much every aspect of the two-wheeled life so let's do it let's talk to leonard zinn on the pack filler right guys today's guest is perhaps one of the most knowledgeable people in the whole of the sport of cycling he's been a competitor a mechanic i guess a mechanic would be an understatement uh a bicycle builder a journalist and even a mentor he's widely known for his writing as the author of what many would call the home bike mechanics bible and now with his most recent work the haywire heart let's welcome to the show leonard zinn how are you sir
1: good thank you
0: yeah hey so I always like to start with a little background, a little perspective. And it seems that through my experience with the show, everybody's had some sort of an interesting twist of fate that brought them into cycling. And from what I've been researching about you, I've yet to find anyone who's, I guess, as fate-tied as you and and how you came into the sport and how you came into where you are now. Um, So how did cycling kind of become a part of your life for the listener who hasn't done any any kind of background research, I guess we could say?
1: Well, um, like any kid, at least any kid in the (laughs) sixties, I rode my bike a lot to school and back and all that sort of thing. And, and, um, it just was, you know, everybody rode bikes. It wasn't like, uh, anything in that it was any particularly more important to me than anything else at the time. It was just, uh, I don't know, a way of getting around and, and, uh, and, and then that, continued and the just the commute distance got longer in junior high and high school. And, um, and I guess by the, I guess I, I, when I went off to college in Colorado Springs and Colorado college, I, I did have a racing bike with me. I'm pretty sure when I left or can't remember for sure. Maybe I bought it the following summer, but anyway, I, I, uh, it was during I was on the the varsity ski team on at at CC and my freshman year I um I tore the meniscus in my knee and this is uh, 1976 you know and yeah. and at the time to fix quote fix a meniscus tear what they would do is they'd slice your leg wide open oh. and then they'd and then they'd pull the whole meniscus out. They didn't have <laughs> arthroscopy then. So, you know, and I was just looking from the perspective of having seen Joe Namath win the Super Bowl in 1972 yeah. and been such an amazing athlete. And here, by that by that point, four years later, you'd see pictures of, video of him, and he couldn't, he could hardly walk yeah. because of all the knee surgeries he'd had that, you know. And, and I was like, I was, no way I was going to do that. And had I done that, been bone on bone since 1976. Mm. Oh, smokes. I'd be on my
0: yeah.
1: Yeah, second artificial knee by now. And so, so, um, uh, fortunately I got a third opinion from another orthopedist in Santa Fe. He said, well, you could just try riding a bike. <laughs> <laughs> and so I just started riding more and more and more. So that may have been the time when I got a real racing bike. I can't remember if I already had that or if I got that at that point, but but anyway, then I just started riding a lot and, um, and not only did it manage to push my knee surgery back till 91 when then one when yeah. did it arthroscopically and it was a no big deal, but it also, um, completely took over skiing as my major sport. I mean, I, I, um, just started doing more and more of it and found that I was decent at it. And then, and, um, by the time I graduated from college in 1980, I was um, on national cycling team. So it was sort of just a matter of moving across town to the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs yeah. also. And, and then, and then uh, once I, you know, started racing all over the world, it was, I could never go back to, <laughs> I have a degree in physics and I always assumed that I would go to graduate school and become a professor or something, you know. It never occurred to me that, uh, at the outset of my college career that I would end up, um, devoting my life to bicycles, but that's how it happened.
0: Yeah. So when, in your, in the midst of your racing career, you're talking about the, the you know late seventies, early eighties and things like that. Um, I personally didn't come into it until like the mid eighties, about 84, 85 kind of, well, 83, probably something like that. But, um, how would you describe what the racing scene was like in the United States at that time? We've obviously gone through tremendous growth in not only the racing scene, but in the technology and things like that. But, um, for those who don't recall what it was like, you know, and, and the support that was given and, and the overall scene like that, what how would you have described it?
1: Well, um,
0: I mean, the popularity of it um, obviously has grown immensely. Things like that, um, you know, and and you know, I George Mount, I've, I've, sp- I've talked to George and stuff like that, and about in terms of this, the financial support and you know how popular the sport was at that given point in time.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, you you just had smaller goals because the Tour de France wasn't wasn't a goal, a realistic goal because there was no such thing as American Pro Cycling. Yeah. I started there, you know, George did, George and Mike Neal and, uh, Jonathan Boyer, Jacques Boyer at the time, they, um, they did manage to figure out a way to go to Europe and get on pro teams, but it, it wasn't, you know, there was no, no such thing as a, as an American professional licensing organization. So. So um, the only thing, I mean, the whole deal with the national team was all about the Olympics. That was, you know, when I was uh, named to it in 1980, it was, you know, for the Olympic development team for the 84 Olympics in, in uh, well, actually, yeah, in, in Los Angeles because we yeah. bought, boycotted in 1980. And, um, and uh, so, and then really until 7-Eleven team, Came along, you know, I thought I had what I thought was a pretty good sponsorship with this, this team that ultimately became Coors Light Team. So it was the Columbine okay. Cycling Club that at the time was sponsored by Panasonic and Shimano. And then, you know, it became, I can't remember the order of all of them, yeah. it became yeah. Crest and Lowenbrow. Is
0: that, that Petty John? Was that Lynn? L.
1: Pretty, John's okay. team, yeah, Len team. So, and are Lowry's women's team, women's team, and and um, ultimately became Coors Light team, and then it yeah. pretty much folded after that. But but um, uh, it was a way different deal. I mean, you know, yeah, you got some some travel paid for and a small stipend, but it, you know, it, you. It wasn't. You had to figure out a way to supplement your income somehow yeah. because it wasn't it wasn't gonna cut it with just cycling, at least for me. So what
0: was what was it that gave you the inspiration then to start thinking, okay, I'm I'm gonna create my own bicycle brand?
1: Well, you know, you said you talked to George Mount. Well, in nineteen eighty I won this race that at the time apparently was the biggest The biggest, um, one day race in the U S in terms of participation, it was the, the Durango to Silverton iron horse classic race. So, and there were like 1500 people that would do that race and there was no, now it's iron horse classic weekend as mountain bikes Mm -hmm. races and stuff. And there was no such thing as mountain bikes then in 1980. So other than, you know, some clunkers out, out in, out in the Bay area, but, but, um, so uh yeah so i won that race and i set the course record and beat george mount's record by more than five minutes and he'd held it for five years and people thought that one was that one was never going to be broken and of course mine's been slaughtered many times since then (laughs) but but um the following year i came back as a defending champion and now i was on a you know on a big team on led pettijohn team and and had a new bike provided by the sponsor. Whereas prior year I, I had one on a bike that I'd bought at uh, uh, confente Mazi. Okay. And, you know, and I, and I, um, and never thought twice about it. And as I said, you know, I was an Alpine ski racer, so I went downhill fast. I'm also big. So I went downhill fast and I, uh, had dropped the last guy I was with on the descent. And, um, and so then in '81 I go back and and um, we go down the first descent in this brand new bike and it just was shaking like crazy the high speed shimmy
0: yeah yeah
1: <laughs> and I there was nothing I could do but put the brakes on and let the group go and um, and it was at that moment I was like this is ridiculous you know I have a degree in physics I ought to be able to do better than this myself and I'd also done my 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 uh, senior seminar for my physics degree on the stability of bicycle. And I'd done computer modeling Fortran of <laughs> all things of, of, of bicycle stability. And um, so then it was just, a, and I also taught jewelry making as a side light to make some money while I was at Colorado college. And so, you know, I knew how to use a torch and silver solder and things like that. So I was like, you know, I got I got a bought the Proteus frame building manual and I <laughs> built a frame in the physics shop at CC and yeah. at Bill Woodle over at the Olympic Training Center helped me with the <laughs> facing and tapping and all that sort of thing and and um, that was how I got started from thinking that I could do a better job myself and then when I got an injury knee injury in the Tour of Ireland uh, later that's in in, in '81. I um, just couldn't stand to be around Colorado anymore because it was all, for me, it was all about bike racing. I was, and, and I couldn't ride my bike with this, with this torn, torn gastrocnemius okay. that had calcified. So I drifted out to California and then started working for Tom Ritchie. And that was the very beginning of the mountain bike boom. And, um, and I was working there building, building Ritchie helping build real richie mountain bikes and richie bull moose handlebars and all that early stuff. And, and, um, yeah, that's how it started.
0: So with the industry, the way it is, um, and you know, these large, huge, I guess, multinational corporations we have in the bike business. Um, how difficult is it to sustain a name and an image and a company within this, in this world of, I call them almost cookie cutter bicycles. You've, you've, always had a specialization in, in the extreme sizes for very large riders or very small riders and stuff like that. And is that the kind of take that has to be done or how can a, how can a, a, you know, these smaller kind of one-off bikes maintain sustainability in your opinion?
1: Well, yeah, they have to find a niche because you can't go head to head against Trek and Cannondale and specialize in giant,
0: you know, it's
1: not realistic. So, so, um, uh yeah in my case the niche started my first niche was mountain bikes because you couldn't get mountain bikes in colorado when i started so that's what i started doing first making mountain bikes and then pretty by the end of the first year that i had my business um univega and specialized both had a production mountain bike and way 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 cheaper than i was selling mine for so that was the end of that as my niche and then And then I started sponsoring a women's racing team and, um, that was the first women's racing team in Colorado and one of the first in the country that was, you know, there wasn't a team that was, you know, a men's team with some women on it, but actually just a strictly a women's team. And so, um, then I became known for making women's bikes because there was no such thing as women's specific design. You know, the, yeah. the, the big bike companies, when they were making, quote, women's bikes, it was a really low-end bike. It was not a, uh, you know, the, somebody who wanted to race the bike wasn't gonna get one of those. And, and, you know, another, for a small woman, the other only sort of production uh, medium to high-end bike, that was specifically a women's bike was from Georgina Terry and it had a 24 inch front wheel and you obviously couldn't race that either. Cause you couldn't yeah, get spare God. wheels. Yeah, so, exactly. so, um, I started making these custom small women's bikes and, and for a while there, my entire business was all very small, very small women. And, um, and then, uh, uh, you know, that sort of morphed as, as the, um, as bike companies started realizing that actually women do spend a lot of money on bikes and, and started producing some things for them. And by then, um, this whole, I'd sort of worked out this whole deal of how to make a big bike for even be really people much taller than me and much heavier than me, not shimmy when they take their hands off the bars or when they go fast downhill. And so, um, that became my market people that, were big and tall, and um, and a very a lot of them at the time. They were tended to be people who'd had the crap scared out of them by a bike that shimmied. and and um, and and some of these were custom bikes too, but from builders that didn't, you know, weren't that tall themselves and didn't understand the issue, and it just sort of scaled the bike up for them. And anyway, I guess I'm getting off the subject, mm-hmm. but the niche you need to find a niche in order to to do it. And, and I, and I think that, um, you know, mine has been two really, two niches lately. It's really big and tall bikes and, um, fully engineered travel bikes that fit in a, you know, in an S and S case mm-hmm. and fly for free. So, so especially tall ones, cause we do those with four couplers in the frame, wow. plus we're the first ones, only ones that I know of still doing a coupled stem. So oh, wow. it just, in terms of the speed of getting it in the case and getting it back together and being able to ride, I, I think we, um, you know, we always have set the standard for that on in terms of travel bikes and, um, you know, convenience and, 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 uh, and minimizing expense and minimizing you know, having a full on racing bike when you get there without having a giant, giant bike case that oh, then yeah. you got to deal with when you're in Italy. And like, what yeah. am I going to do with this thing during my <laughs> rest of my trip and stuff? So, so, um, Yeah.
0: No, 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 no. That's fine. You seem to have kind of a, 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 you know, coming from a physics background, coming from uh, trying to understand the the specific uh, solutions to to problems created by, you know, the classic hand-built bicycle. You seem to have a little bit of a different take on, on, the bicycle itself and the building of a bicycle. I talked to some frame builders, and they look at it more as the art, as you know, a something uh, a beautiful piece of work that you're going to hang on the wall. You seem to look at it more of that, you know, man equating to machine and working together with the machine. Am I am I right or am I wrong in this this kind of interpretation of what I've what I'm hearing from you?
1: You're absolutely right. I you know I have never displayed at the North American Hand Built Bike Show. I mean, yeah. I like going to it. I think it's a cool show but from my perspective it's too much about the the looks of them yeah um and that and that we do incredibly beautiful titanium frames with absolutely perfect welds and and we you know when I started, yes, I did all kinds of cutouts and little filed the dropouts for <laughs> hours on ends and, you know, and did fancy things with the lugs and all that. But but um, but I I am much more interested in it as a tool than as a work of art and something that you would use. And, you know, when people call me up and, hey, you know, I took my my brand new frame in and the shop installed the headset and they. And they scratch, and they send me a little photo of there's a little scratch on their head tube, or when they, when they'd installed the headset. And what do I do about that? I'm like, well, thank the guy for having given you your first scratch, so you don't have to be the one to do it. <laughs> I mean, that is the way I look at it. That you know, bikes are to be used and scratched and banged up, and 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 not meant to be these um, these yeah. Uh, pieces to display
0: (laughs) you know what i i always get pissed off when i scratch my bike the first time i'm not gonna lie i always you know I, i brood over it for a while and then now i guess everyone has some sort of a uh, you know, a story, I guess we could have behind it, but, uh, it's still that you're right. That first one is always the most painful. <laughs> yeah. So when, when did writing become something that you started pursuing with all of this? Um, you know, a guy building bikes, guy working with, with Richie and stuff like that. And all of a sudden starting to think, you know, Hey, I've got a message here. I can start getting the word out that way.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm fortunate that I went to Colorado college because I, while I do have a degree in physics, I have a liberal arts education, so I had to write a lot while I was in college, and um, and it was something that I, you know, by the time I graduated, I was quite comfortable with. And I also um, befriended John Windsor there, who, when he, he's a buddy of mine here in Boulder, who, who um, he was from Chicago at the time when we were at CC, but he he bought this little free running magazine that would be handed out at stores and stuff called Rocky mountain running or something like that. And he, um, he bought it and decided to make it, you know, more inclusive of more sports. So he renamed it Rocky mountain sports and fitness magazine. And, um, and he wanted to get bicycling, bicycle advertisers in there. So he wanted some bicycling related content. And so he asked me if I could write some, you know, technical articles about bicycles for him. So that's, that's how it started. And then, and then, um, another friend from Colorado Springs was Felix McGowan who, um, he, when he was 16 and I was, you know, I don't know, 20 or 21 or something. We were on the same, the same team in Colorado Springs. Um, and, uh, and, he uh, in I don't know eighty seven or eighty nine one of those I can't remember which one it was. He bought Velo News. He and John Wilcoxon and, and David Walls bought Velo News and moved it to Boulder, and where it was it was it had been in Vermont and um, and Velo News had always been strictly a bike racing magazine and never had any technical articles in it. But Felix had known me for years, and he had seen the stuff that I'd written in Rocky Mountain Sports and Fitness magazine. So he asked me from the very first issue if I wanted to, to write some tech articles, and I said, sure. And so from the first issue of Ellen on the first issue since it's been in Boulder on I've been contributing to the magazine. And um, now I'm the dinosaur over there, <laughs> <They're> way longer <laughs> than anybody else. And um, that's how it started. Um, and then, then uh, you know, I had two things to spur me on to write the books. If you, if was would you, would you want me to include the books yeah, then in, in so this yeah. question? Yeah, right.
0: because I think I, I think those books are two things that, you know, everybody if they don't have it in their home mechanic shop they should and uh, you know finding out the inspiration for those and how how those came about
1: yeah well so so the the books were um i i had a friend that i used to go to the wind tunnel with at texas a&m which i started doing that with steve head and boone lennon back in um in 1988, and then in '89, after LeMond won the Tour, we were back with him, and we, you know, tested, you know, the aero bar versus Fignon setup, yeah. and the speed of, uh, how much, how much, LeMond gained just from not having a ponytail versus Fignon's ponytail <laughs> and stuff like that. And, and um, anyway, this this friend of ours from Chicago, Lou Morgan, uh, was. Um, would tell me, you know, Leonard, you ought to write a book for insomniacs because this stuff <laughs> you write at VeloNews is so boring. We get anybody to sleep, <laughs> and so that was the first, the first thought of doing a book. And then the second one was, was um, I. Uh, there was another. I grew up in Los Alamos, New Mexico, and one of my high school buddies owned a bookstore here in Boulder, and this was long before. Uh, Barnes and Noble long, long before the in, internet, before Amazon or anything, and um, and uh, this you know, was called Discount Books, and it was where all the teachers bought books because it was so much cheaper than getting them at other bookstores, and my wife was a teacher, and so you know, every semester or so she'd go in and, and um, get a whole bunch of books for her class, and um, this buddy of mine, every time she'd come in, he was a cycling nut and he'd read my stuff in Bella news. So she'd come in and he'd say, you know, Leonard's got to write a book and he's got to call it Zinn and the art of mountain bike maintenance. <laughs> <laughs> and then my wife would come home and she'd tell me that and I'd laugh. Ha ha. It's funny. You know, I go back to, you know, welding bikes.
0: Yeah.
1: And then, and then, uh, you know, that happened a number of times. And then one time, she came home from having been there, and he had made up a dummy cover for the book. And there, and she brought it home, and I was like, oh, my God, I, I could just see it then all of a sudden. There it was, Zen in the Art of Mountain Bike Maintenance, and, you know, a picture of a bike on the front. i like, wow, I could actually do that. <laughs> and so, um, And then I talked to Felix about it, and Felix had an interest in starting a publishing company. So basically that's how Velo Press started was I, um, I wrote this book and that was the first book that Velo Press produced. And so the the two have been grown up together since then.
0: Yeah. Five or well, five editions of the road bike and six of the mountain bike. Is that correct?
1: Yes, that's correct.
0: Um, what elements of, of, mechanical work do you find that most people get wrong or most people should just put down the wrenches and probably take it into a shop
1: well i would say uh there are not too many people that ought to be messing with the dampers in their in their shocks yeah. either their front or rear shocks especially the rear shocks um that i i think is is um uh that's certainly one. Um, what is another one that really people
0: should not miss? You know, what, I don't know why, but for some reason, when it comes to putting uh, tubeless tires together on on a mountain bike, just the mess and the sheer, you know, oh, potential God. for destruction, I, I stay so far away from that. And I'm also really nervous about um, hydraulic brake lines and things like that.
1: Ah, uh, okay. Well, you know, the the my yes first time you do tubeless tires, it's going to be a mess. Um, (laughs) I agree. On the other hand, if you're going to run tubeless tires, I think it's critical that you understand the system because if you don't, and you then have trouble on the trail, um, and you, you've, um, uh, given over the, the, access to the knowledge to somebody else then um, it's going to be a lot more of a problem to deal with and um, while I certainly yeah I I, I can't imagine riding a non tubeless mountain bike myself but but uh, I sure wouldn't want to be out not knowing how to deal with it if it, if it came along and and then um, uh, sorry, I slipped my. What was the other
0: thing? Uh, bleeding uh, <laughs> brake lines and stuff like that. Oh, hydraulic brakes.
1: Well, it is definitely more steps than hooking up, hooking up brake cables, and it's less intuitively obvious. Yeah. On the other hand, um, they're inherently simpler. Hydraulic brakes are than than um cable actuated brakes because there's so just so especially in the caliper there's so few parts you know there's a couple of pistons and some seals and that's it and and um and uh it it's one of those things though that absolutely requires the right tools you have to have the correct um bleed syringes and bleed fittings and the and the right replacement parts you know the olive is a little thing that that is this piece that slides on the end of the of the hydraulic hose, and then when, the, when you tighten the compression nut, tighten it into either the lever or the caliper that that you um, that it squishes this this olive and forms a a, a fluid tight seal. Um, you have to have you know there's no messing around with kind of winging it. You got to, you got to do it right and use, and and you got to use exactly the right fluid for the brake, And, um, so it, it's one of those things that, yeah, I don't think it's particularly complicated. On the other hand, it requires that you actually be disciplined about it and you follow the instructions, whether they're in my book or wherever, or you get them from the manufacturer or whatever, but it's, um, uh, and and certainly then the working on uh suspension forks the internals of suspension forks and and uh and the at least the damping system of of rear shocks it's that even is you know goes well beyond that in my in in my opinion in terms of um you gotta do it the right way with the right tools Um, There's a whole lot of other things on the bike that, you know, you can raise and lower your seat and attach your seat (laughs) to your seat post and and, uh, even, you know, adjusting your headset and connecting your derailers and your brakes and all that sort of stuff that there's a whole wide range of different tools that will work and you can use, you know, standard tools that are around and you don't have to have anything special and, and uh, so yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a second, second level of, of comfort and willing to, and willing to be, uh, committed to the details. Yeah.
0: So it's over your over your career, and you know, starting cycling when you did, and I mean, seeing what we see now in terms of innovations throughout the sport. You know, we've talked about the aero bars and what that did for the sport when Greg LeMond obviously took him to the to the tour. We've talked about you know the invention of the mountain bike tubeless technology, even you know, heck, even clipless pedals and and helmets and all this kind of stuff. And um, I know this is probably kind of a uh, heavy headed question but what do you guys what do you consider to be some of the biggest innovations in the sport since you started and the most uh i guess successful ones
1: well suspension is huge yeah uh, that one you could not be building bikes uh like mountain bikes like I started and expect to sell any of them. <laughs> yeah <laughs> there was no suspension yeah and um and, uh, and, uh, integrated shifting, with the, for the road bike, at yeah. least, where you have the road, the, the brake and shift lever in the same lever. And, um, those have completely transformed cycling. Um, and I, I and hydraulic, hydraulic disc brakes, I guess I would put in there too, I'm not like one that tends to believe that for that for um, road riding it's a must. I don't I don't see it that way. But for mountain bikes, yeah, yeah. it's it's massive difference. And and um, and then uh, the rest of the things have been sort of I see as gradual ever improvements, you know, going from, you know, when I first started racing, I had five speed yeah five speed freewheel to now we got twelve speed. And um and you know rims have gotten stronger and better. And clincher tires, oh my God, the difference between like you could not use a clincher tire <laughs> when I started riding no way. in the yeah. 70s. They would just work crap. And and so you trained and raced on tubulars and And now, I mean, God, I, I, it's hard for me, you know, yeah, I raced a lot of years of cyclocross and glued a lot of cyclocross tires and it's a lot more intensive gluing process than on a road bike. So I guess I did put up with it, you know, even in till I was 55, but still, uh, that, that that we used to do that for all the tires we trained on glue them on and everything. Wow. It's hard to imagine now, but yeah. we did. And, and it was, but now, uh, but that's still an incremental improvement. Clinchers definitely existed and, and, you know, handlebars have gone from heavy, yeah, heavy yeah. bars to nice carbon bars. And, and the, the actually another one is the threadless headset that was a that was also huge that was a big change that made a huge difference
0: so we we've seen all these changes in the sport and we've seen a lot of stuff going on and it's kind of funny you mentioned i i also started as a ski racer and then did both for a while and i remember one day my father looking at me and saying you're involved in two of the most expensive sports in the world freaking pick one um, and, and do you think cycling's getting too out of hand in terms of expense and, and gear driven and it's becoming a sport for what almost, what started off, uh, you know, romantically we talk about as the working class sport, you know, a form of transportation that people grow into, but now it's almost seeming like, you know, you gotta, you can't show up at the start of a bike race without a, you know, a $10,000 road bike or a, you know, a $8,000 full suspension mountain bike.
1: Well, I have a very different standard of comparison cuz my wife rides rides dressage on horses. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And there you have an example of the the working man's mode of transportation <laughs> that has become a thing where, you know, you
0: <laughs> Yeah.
1: I mean, you know, her horse her horse gets custom shoes every six weeks and gets every week gets, uh, acupuncture and, and, uh, you know, and the, the, just the tack and the, you know, the trailers and the, the training facilities. And the, I mean, the, you know, there's no comparison between the money that you can spend on that sport versus, versus cycling. I mean, I guess you can have a zillion bikes, but you know, still, the horse itself at that level is really expensive. And then every single thing that's on that horse is expensive and, and, and then all the care of it. And so, um, I guess maybe I've become a little more jaded about it, but, but I do think that there still exists. I mean, you know, you can get a pretty decent bike for 1500 bucks, you know, aluminum or steel frame bike, even even some carbon bikes for two thousand, I maybe that's still sounding really high to me. That doesn't sound that high. Yeah, and I don't think you have to have a eight thousand dollar bike to be competitive to at least get to the point where you can see whether you've got whether it's worth investing more in in it that you love it enough or you're good enough at it or whatever. So um, I still think that the barrier to entry is not that high. I mean, there is a difference from when I was racing in this business of having to have a time trial bike that's separate from your road bike. That we didn't have, we just, you know, there was nothing different between the bike we rode in the time trial and the bike we were road raced on. And, uh, you know, we, we thought we were pretty tricky if we had a second set of wheels, you know, (laughs)
0: lighter
1: wheels that we used for like a hill climb time trial or something or or one with fewer spokes that we maybe be used for a flat time trial, but but um, having to have multiple bikes that is a little different. So doing stage races, yeah, that that makes the barrier higher. Okay. Um, I think it's still possible to do decently with with a clip-on aero bar that you can just stick on for the event, but it's it's kind of yeah you, you're at a significant disadvantage there and. Um, so yeah, I think that that's a little bit sad. Um, but on the other hand, the legislating, the, the bike that can be used to the point where, you know, you, you kill the innovation in the sport. If it weren't for all the aero innovations that came for aero bikes for, for time trial bikes, you wouldn't have a lot of the whole cool stuff that we got admittedly it's quite high end but it has trickled down quite a bit um for you know all all the other the other bikes and um and and i think it's one of the big things originally that had the first electronic shifting the Mavic zap system yeah i remember that the electronic system those one of the reasons that they got as much of a foothold as they did was because of having multiple positions you could shift from on the aero bar and because Chris Boardman kept winning the, the first yellow jersey of Tour de France every year because he could shift from the end of his aero bar as well as from his brake lever, and um, so I, the alternative to to um, to to this uh, financial arms race would be to say, okay, you can only, you know, sort of sort of a modified version of what's 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 permitted in the little five hundred, you know, at Indiana yeah. University. Oh, yeah. You know, where you can only race on a bike that's like this, and it sort of it kills the innovation. And I think that would have been a mistake, too. Um, uh,
0: is there anything you would, if you could possibly, you know, wave your magic wand and change something about cycling culture, is there anything that just absolutely is your pet peeve that drives you crazy about this industry and the people involved in it? Wow. Hmm. For example, I, f- I f- some there's uh, I cannot stand sometimes when when you, we get uh, elitism that term used quite, quite often in, in road cycling of people who have been in the sport for so long and not being tolerant of people learning trying to learn the culture and trying to learn the ins and outs of the sport.
1: Yeah, so I have I definitely have some uh, irritation with that, and I suppose that's one thing that why well, I tend to gravitate toward cyclocross. Later was because cyclocross to me seems to be about the most egalitarian one of the disciplines in cycling these days. So you know that if you're going to be a tracky boy, you got to know all the special handshakes. You know, <laughs> <laughs> be, be a tracky, and then you know road road thing. And I, you know, I can understand some of it comes from fear of being taken down by newbies. You know, in a peloton, I can get that. But you know, there's an awful lot of like, you got to be part of the club and, and, uh, you know, you wear the right stuff. And, and that, that part I don't, I don't like it. I, it is one of the things that had mountain biking grow so fast was because it just was big open arms for everybody. Yeah. Now, of course, that's become, oh my God, you got to have more travel than the next, more suspension travel than the next <laughs> guy and more of this and that and the other thing. And, um, yeah. I I don't, I don't like that. Um, that,
0: uh, you mentioned arms race almost uh, trying to upstage and and get the next step better than the other person. Yeah,
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you know, and the other thing that I would say really I find super irritating is when people get talked down to who are new at the sport or, or who are female, uh, when they go into a bike shop. Okay. Yeah. And that I certainly hear about quite a bit and, and, um, and hate hearing it. And, you know, and I love that my younger daughter, you know, she took a year's leave of a year off in college and went to work at university bicycles here in Boulder. (laughs) You know, she, she, uh, did her part to kind of try and be, you know, that, because she'd, you know, just, just like my wife, you know, when I'd send her to a bike shop to buy something for me that I needed to build a bike up, you know, yeah. and just, hey, can you go pick me up one of those? And then she'd have to go through this whole thing with this, some 16-year-old kid at the counter, like, you know, she had to prove that she knew what she was talking about really? when she's asking for this specific thing, you know. And that kind of stuff. Just okay.
0: okay, okay. Um, I, are you tired of the discussion of praising one virtue, the virtue of one frame material over another—steel versus aluminum versus carbon versus tie?
1: Yeah, I think there's a place <laughs> for all those things in the sport. I don't, I don't see uh, a reason to have one be considered better than another one. They all have, they all have their there are niches that, um, where they, where they excel.
0: Yeah. Okay. So the, let's, let's talk about the book, if you don't mind. The most recent one, Haywire Heart, talking about something the majority of cyclists probably need to take into consideration. I don't want to necessarily spoil the book. You obviously want people to read the book, but, um, can you give us a concept of what, what the book's about and what people should be aware of?
1: Yeah. I wrote the book cause I developed a, cardiac arrhythmia. And to me, it seemed like it had come out of the blue. But then when I started thinking about it, you know, I've been 40 years of, of bike racing and, and cross country ski racing. And, um, and I realized that some of the guys that, um, that I'd done, lot of cross-country ski racing with and who I'd gone to the hardest longest races we could find always most daunting ones that they weren't racing anymore because they'd had some kind of heart issue and I really hadn't paid that much attention to what their heart issue had been and then this got me interested plus I was still I was racing cyclocross at the time and I was quite serious at at the time especially because that I would I this was 2013 and the following season the end final race of the season was going to be cyclocross nationals in boulder on our home course on valmont park and i you know was definitely aiming for that to do very well at that and, and um uh so when i developed this and then and then started talking to people started talking to those guys that had quit ski racing about what exactly had happened to them, and started the, talking to other guys on the start line with me in the 55 plus category in cyclocross. I could not believe how many people had heart issues, and and what those, especially that they that they tended to be electrical issues, arrhythmia issues, and um, and some of them did have you know garden variety heart disease type issues, stents, and those kind of things, mm-hmm. heart attacks, but. But mostly it was it was arrhythmias, and I, and I, um, I uh, then started looking into the, to the research, and um, was amazed at the research that there was research showing that you know you, decades of, masters endurance racing and training, you have an increase a, a higher a higher incidence of atrial fibrillation, which is the most common uh, heart arrhythmia than than the rest of the population. and um, and uh, and also, I guess li- living in Boulder, it's quite a bit different when I was going to get to get um, other uh, opinions from from other cardiologists, like when I go to Denver, and I go to a hospital in Denver and be waiting in the waiting room, cardiology waiting room, I could just look around the room and see the risk factors, you know, people, yeah. people on oxygen, people with diabetes, people, people standing outside the, outside the place smoking, you know, cause the smoking wasn't allowed inside. Um, uh, you know, overweight people, old people, all of that sort of stuff. And Um, when I go to the cardiologist in Boulder, there's a lot of people you look around at that are like, look like super fit athletes. And, um, and so I had a, you know, a resource in terms of doctors here that understood the issue and had seen it a lot. And, and then also just personal experience, uh, with, with my, myself and, and, and co-competitors. And so, um, so then, yeah, we wrote a Chris case who's the managing editor of Vela news. He got interested in it cause he was a writing buddy of mine and, and he and I wrote a big article for Vela news. And, um, and then that just got so many people reading it and, and giving us feedback about it that. We realized geez this ought to be a book
0: so so here we are here we are with this you know the the common mentality that i'm going to go out i'm going to do these sports and it's going to be a healthy lifestyle and everything's going to be fine i'm going to live longer and now i'm finding out that you know potentially what i've been doing my entire life could be detrimental. (laughs) I mean, is this something, you know, and again, I don't want to give away the book, but is is this something that can be prevented? Should we be doing something in addition to our, our active lifestyles or should we just say, screw it, sit on the couch, drink beer and eat ice cream?
1: Well, the fact is that exercise is the best medicine, maybe besides diet and sleep and good relationships, but it's about the best medicine that you can have. It's just that with any medicine, there's a dosage. You know, you can overdose on water. You you know, yeah. people have you know died in marathons because people told them they had to drink this some ridiculous quantity of water, and they develop hyponatria and you know succumb to it, or or you know uh, other other examples of people. Uh, killing themselves by drinking too much water for a, for a radio talk show competition and things like that. And, um, uh, so, and I, and I think, you know, that with exercise, uh, if, if they could, if they could bottle the results of exercise, you know, a drug company would, that's, that's a, a miracle drug, but but, um, you don't want to do too much of it either. And, uh, and so, um, I, you know, I now have a lifestyle just because I can't, because I, I can't, I, I just can't push myself like I used to, because my heart will go into this arrhythmia. So I, I can't ski hard and I can't ride hard. And, and, um, but I, exercise is still, it's a fundamental part of my life. You know, I spend probably an hour to two a day on average exercising. Um, and, uh, it's just, it's more moderate now. And, um, and I think that, um, you know, also the other health benefit of it is it gets you outside in, in nature, which just that whole thing of, seeing beauty around you and 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 breathing fresh air and all that is going to is is and clearing your head of all the stuff when you're stuck in inside uh you know it's it's all beneficial but that's, but all things in moderation
0: that's got to be that's, a pretty shitty pretty pill to swallow that you got to admit especially for a lot of us competitive cyclists who've been doing it for a good chunk of our life all of a sudden finding out that you know my my father is the first person who turned me into your book um he's dealing with the same issues and he can't ski or ride as as much as he used to be and i can see it in his eyes that it's he's kind of pissed off about it you know and um i don't know i i don't know if there's a question in there i don't know if there's an answer in there but personally i see it it's like damn it you know this is something that's a part of my life and all of a sudden to have that taken away from me would be the equivalent of having my legs taken away from me
1: yeah well, it. I'm not saying it was easy for me. Yeah,
0: no. <laughs>
1: Been five years out, and uh, and it's not easy. But I. I also have. Um, it's also brought great g- gifts too in terms of, of you know I. You know for yourself, there would have to be a time when you can no longer do this. Yeah. You just you and. And, and I both thought it would be way in the future. You know? <laughs> and and I, I guess I somehow still envision myself, you know, racing cyclocross nationals at age 75 or something. I don't know, but, yeah. I, but I, didn't, I didn't envision myself doing it at age 80. You know, I guess I, I figured maybe, you know, 75 is as far as I would go. But, but all of us know at some point it's got to end that you, you can't maintain this at some point. And in my case, it ended sooner. And And, but I don't, had my book existed before I had mine and somebody said, Hey, you should read this. I doubt I would have done it. You know, I, I, you know, it's, it's like, it's hard to it's hard to um, Swallow. take that lesson to <laughs> okay. when, you, when you're, you know, you're, a lot of the way that you're, you know, your whole life is built, my life was built around yeah. riding and skiing hard. And, yeah. and, and I defined myself that way. And, and now, you know, I ride an e-bike and I, and I uh, have a koi pond. <laughs> and I couldn't imagine neither of them five years ago no way but I get great satisfaction out of both I mean an e-bike holy cow you know on a we've had some really hot days around here recently and you know you out on a bike on a hot day like that it's better than running no question you know you stay cooler than running that's everything's for sure. better than running but, but on an e-bike you're moving through the air faster and you're putting out less power. So consequently you stay a lot cooler. It's like, it's like a great thing. I never even, never even occurred to me before. And, um, and then, you know, being able to ride way up in the mountains and it's not a bad thing getting all the way to top of trail Ridge road, you know, 12,000, 200 feet or whatever. And, and, um, and not being completely exhausted and not being having to eat anything that was in, in my way, you know, just thrown in my mouth, you know, just pedaling up there and having used half a water bottle, you know? Wow. And and then still having the same joy of the descent. It's pretty great. You know, it's a pretty good way to see Rocky Mountain National Park.
0: Well, this yeah. was an interesting, I was going to ask you about your stance on e-bikes. I did see your post uh, recently, you know, showing some photos of some some prototypes and stuff like that. And obviously there's a culture that's that's angry about them that doesn't think they have a place on the trails.
1: Well, yeah, so I'm, that article, I mean, what the, the, the e-bike that I built, my, you know, I built myself a titanium e-bike and it's a gravel road, disc brake, drop bar, gravel road, e-bike. So, yes, I, I suppose I could ride it on single track trails, but I don't. I do ride it on, on um, dirt roads, and I ride it on paved roads like a road bike. Uh, so, of course, we're not going to be banned from those. It is something of an issue that I've got sensitivity for on, in terms of the, like Boulder, Boulder has a vast network of bike paths you know, paved and unpaved yeah. bike trails through the city and along the creeks. And, and to have the ability to, without much effort, go 28 miles an hour on those, that's, wow. that's not so great, you know. Um, I didn't actually realize that Boulder has a 14-mile-an-hour speed limit on the bike trails until I got an e-bike and started wondering, geez, you know, this is kind of crazy. You can go really fast on these things. And, um, and I found that out and that, I don't think anybody knows that. I've never seen a posted, posted sign.
0: We've, we've got them here. They're posted here and I don't think anybody pays much attention to it, but you know, I,
1: yeah. So, I mean, I'm sensitive to the idea and I, you know, I've been in Sedona where I've seen people who got themselves up into a pretty bad position on an e-bike. You know, they were, it wasn't allowed what they were doing, but they'd taken an e-bike up to where they did not have the cycling ability to get to where they'd gotten to had they had to do it with human power. And now they were sitting on top of a 60 pound thing above a descent that they were not capable of riding.
0: Yeah, and you can't just walk the bike down that heavy of a bike.
1: Yeah, they, they, you know, you, when you, you can't on a steep slick rock, you can't walk a super heavy bike like that when you've got shoes that, you know, don't have as much grip as, you know a, a shoe with no clean on it, and um, and uh, it's um, it's yeah, it's gonna be an issue. I mean, they I hear people in Europe saying, Oh, there's no problem in Europe, you know, but I see these pictures and videos of people riding way up on crazy stuff, you know, way high in the Alps, and like, geez, you know, I don't know, but. I bet that that's bound to have at least discouraged a few hikers that normally would have been up there. (laughs) And, uh, so it's, I don't know the resolution to it and I I don't, I don't know what there is, but I do know that it's coming, that there's, I mean, you know, the way the whole thing with writing the Haywire heart, you know, we are the first generation that, so I'm a baby boomer. Um, I just turned 60, you know, and we're, we're the first generation that in such huge numbers has continued to push our bodies so late into life, you know, yeah. um, that we didn't my I didn't see this from in my parents' generation, you know, that they you didn't have huge numbers, thousands and thousands of people in their sixties doing doing marathons and cross country ski races and yeah. stuff like that. And and um so, uh, you also then have people who are used to being able to doing, do, you know, doing some serious miles on their bikes who now are restricted because of age or because of other health related issues as they age. and they are going to gravitate to e-bikes. There's no two ways about it. Once I discovered it myself, I'm like, Jesus, what took me so long to get to this? This is great. And, and, um, and so these user conflicts are going to happen and I don't know how they're going to get resolved, but they're, they're going to, you know, somewhere or another, it's going to be fits and starts, but it, it will, it will happen.
0: Okay. So I don't want to take too much of your time, but I got a couple more things I want to ask you about. And one of them is is in terms of sustainability of cycling journalism. I have been a f- reader of News since you had to unfold it two ways and, in order to read the uh, the current issue and uh, up until the large print format. And and even now when we see um, online, um, anybody with a keyboard or in my case, I guess a microphone can produce content out there. And I'm sure that is, is difficult for Authentic sources of of information is do you find it in in the in the in the industry difficult to convince and attract readers to your work or is it is do you have to reinvent the wheel here?
1: Well, I would say that uh, we're fortunate, at Vela News, to have a pretty devoted following. On the other hand, a reader sur- survey show that our average. Reader age is pretty high. I can't remember now what it is, but you know Mm -hmm. it's kind of somebody like me who either races or used to race and you know, uh and and um that's not sustainable if you don't if you're not figuring out a way to get younger people because eventually baby boomer boomers, you know, the baby boomers that are reading Bellanus are gonna die. (laughs) <laughs> and, and who's going to be the next one to read it? Is the question. I, I mean, I I seem to have, enjoy a pretty good following in terms of the people that read my stuff online, and uh, and I don't have any way of surveying them to know what their average age is, but but I think it it cuts across a pretty wide swath. But in terms of who's actually buying the magazine, it's um it's got a problem with the sustainability in that regard i think another problem with sustainability is the um tendency of advertisers these days to think of print advertising as being old school and like you're in your you know you're some kind of dinosaur if you do it and well, but, you know, from my perspective, you look at these reader surveys and you look at these baby boomers who are making quarter million dollars a year <laughs> and and who maybe aren't that computer savvy. It's like, what are you kidding me? You're not going to advertise to those people, yeah, yeah. you know, and that that is something that affects the sustainability of the magazine because it affects how many people you can hire, how many pages you can have, how much you can devote to it because because um, the money that funds it comes from advertisers. And so it, it's, um, in, in many ways, it's sort of the dog chasing its tail too, that, that by, by um, thinking that, that print print media is passe, that you effectively make it that way, and, but you cut off a lot of people who, you know would like to sit down with a with a piece of paper and read it
0: yeah i'm i'm in that i'm in that camp i mean i i was just looking on veuse's site this morning and and that they have the the options of a of a print version or a digital version or you can receive both and things like that and i've read magazines on my tablet and things like that and i i'm not a baby boomer i'm right behind you but um i'm i would love to still be able to receive those physical copies and i i, I hope there are a lot of people like that out there still yeah me too um so i get here we are 2 days away from uh obviously arguably the biggest event to happen in the sport um and I, I have to ask you, you know, if you have any thoughts on on the 2018 tour.
1: Well, I mean, I would love for it to be a competitive race that keeps you on your toes in terms of who might win it, and and you know, thankfully there's there's a there's a non Chris Froome stage in there you know there's that <laughs> stage arras through bay yeah which should be hard for him and uh hopefully will be good for vincenzo Nivoli and hopefully maybe some other guys who could stand to do well on the overall um i am not a fan of how boring the tour was all the armstrong years with uh such a controlled thing Um, and I'm not a fan of the way it is with sky controlling it the same way U S postal used to, Mm -hmm. and that's completely separate from the whole doping questions, which of course are another thing. Um, but in, in terms of, I I think it will help for having it be a more interesting race that you have, you have one fewer member of each team, you know, eight man teams compared to nine man teams. That's one either one more domestique that is not going to be available late in the race because he's got to haul water bottles earlier, or, or vice versa. You know, it's it it um. It will make it slightly harder for Sky to control it. Um, I uh, I suspect that Chris Froome is going to be extremely dominant. That I think he probably did his homework and rode into extremely good form by the end of the Giro and started it at not, not great form, but lost weight and gained fitness over the Giro. And, um, and I think it's unfortunate that the way his case developed, what has now become the way this happens is if you have the, if you have enough money and lawyers that, um, you, a doping case becomes a deal where lawyers are fighting the validity of the test, not of, which, which then in the long run, it makes the whole thing of the whole, um, doping fight a, a bit of a farce because, um, then, uh, you know, these, yeah, you gotta have good tests and I yeah. agree, then you gotta have tests that meet some certain standards but but when you know you have a have a team like sky whose budget exceeds the whole anti-doping budget of the entire uh country of france for all of its sports then um uh you know you're and is willing to invest that that budget in defending its rider i mean it's great that he has a good defense and, and if he's not guilty great but but on the other hand it, it damages the, the whole credibility of the whole thing to have just the validity of the tests um, be what becomes the argument rather than whether the guy did it or not.
0: Um, uh, you don't have to answer this if you don't want to by grounds of your employment, but uh, do you feel that uh, Froome should have been allowed to start or not?
1: I really can't say. I okay. I, I just i just would have liked to if he were allowed to start, I would have much preferred that he were allowed to start following a, a standard process of his case being properly reviewed and looked at by, you know, a court of arbitration and and real scientists weigh in on this and rather than he's not allowed by the tour organizer. And then, Oh, lo and behold, the next day he's allowed because what do you know? Uh, we can't, (laughs) we can't fight this juggernaut, you know? Uh, it's, it, that, that didn't serve anybody. Um, so I, I can't answer whether I don't, I guess I don't have an answer whether I think he should be in or not. Um, he's the dominant stage racer of our generation. And if he didn't cheat, he should be in. And if he did cheat, he should be out. And I can't say whether he did or not, from okay. the evidence. Okay. I don't
0: know. My last question is for you. I've been doing a lot of talk on the show recently about uh, the, the sport itself. You're not necessarily covering talking about racing, just talking about the joy of being out on a bicycle. You are one of our Boulder contingent. And um, Boulder always gets high thumbs in terms of places to go out and ride your bike. I I personally am. I'm live in Spokane, Washington, so I'm a big believer in where I get to ride my bike. Of the places you've been, do you consider any specific town or area or place the best in the world to ride your bike?
1: Huh. Uh, well, I lived in northern Italy for a year in, in a town called Oslo. Americans say A Solo. It's a brand of boots. <laughs> Incredible, beautiful place. And boy, that area um, it's called the Veneto region and the next one up Alto Adige or the South Tyrol, it's is in the Dolomites is just it's amazing I mean I guess my feeling is now of course I can't ride there without an e-bike because it's all too steep (laughs) 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 but uh but my feeling is that if I had my druthers about where to ride my bike that would be it. Here, there's incredible riding, yes, but um, but it's not nearly as varied and there's so many slight, just little tiny roads. We don't get super skinny roads that are paved. It's like here, if a road's gonna be paved, I think the law is that it has to be yeah. wide enough to have a fire truck be able to pass with cars parked on either side. And so you don't get these little things that are like a little strip of paved road that are just wonderful to ride on it, that you get in the Dolomites. Okay.
0: okay. Well, the fellow news is where we can find you. The books, obviously, Haywire Heart, the, the maintenance, in and the Art of Road Bike, Mountain Bike Maintenance. Obviously, over at Zinn Cycles, is there anything I'm missing where people can stalk you and follow you and, and get information?
1: Uh, well, you know, another thing I do do, I used to lead bike tours in Italy with uh, with Connie Carpenter and Davis Finney. And now I I do a little bit of that with Scato Tours, S-C-A-T-T-O. Um, we do a Venice to Rome tour that I'll be doing in September. That's another way you can contact with me and you can ride with me and have me be your bike mechanic. Oh,
0: okay. That doesn't sound like too bad a way to go on vacation. Right on. Well, uh, Leonard, thanks so much for your time. Like I said, you've got a perspective from being involved with all elements of, of the sport in one way or another and for a, a pretty good, strong, lengthy career. So I, I loved hearing your perspective and getting your idea and take on the sport.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks.
0: So there you go. Leonard's in on the pack filler. Apparently, we will all live longer by cycling unless our heart gives out or a car smashes us into oblivion. I can't speak today. I gotta go put my contacts in. Shit. Hey, if any of you guys get the new pack filler kit before I do, take a picture and send it to me. I want to see it, but not a creepy picture. You know what I mean. You know. of, of Maybe just the kit. Maybe not you in the kit, because that just opens up a whole floodgates of creepiness. Even though I'm sure you're an attractive person. But see, here I am. I'm walking down that slippery slope. Thanks for the iTunes feedback and the ratings. Keep it coming. Subscribe to the podcast. You can find us on obviously Facebook, Twitter, and all those types of places. By the way, I think I need to keep mentioning that the podcast is available on Spotify. So you can search out Pack Filler on Spotify and obtain it that way. I'm not sure which one gets the episodes quickly or the first or things like that. I know that when they get posted, they go straight to our website and then it takes a little bit of time for itunes to pick it up and i don't know if spotify picks it up after that i don't know a whole lot of things but all i know is that the tour preview show will hopefully be up this weekend and i apologize for the multitude of shows these past weeks it's just that guests have been lining up and shows have been coming and there is no necessity for me to pace them out because i don't apparently understand pacing and everything's i think a little timely so um you know, I want to get those shows out to you. By the way, you can, you know, people have been asking me about the past shows, uh, the Sean Kelly interview, the Stephen Roche interview, uh, you know, all those types of things. Um, even, you know, I had some people talking to me about Marianne Martin, the first uh, female Tour de France winner from the United States and all those shows. They are in. They are. You can find them all Spotify. And you can find them all iTunes and of course they're all listed on our website and things like that. But they are all still available. I don't delete shows. I might have done some of the. I actually, I did delete some of the individual stages of the tour last year just because they got. I I thought they're kind of shitty anyway. Um, but we kept you know some of the big ones. You know the George Mount interview and things like that from last year. So other than that keep the feedback coming get out there and ride uh, let's let's see what happens in the next three weeks right Tour de France here we go here we go talk to you next time